Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about open finance, embedded banking. They're a theme that you hear fairly regularly on Breaking Banks, but uh, in this perspective, we wanted to bring in um, two organizations that are really at the uh, uh, the leading edge of this from a platformification and infrastructure perspective um, globally. Um, and that is Ginger Baker. She's a returning guest, head of financial access at Plaid. Welcome, Gin- Welcome back, Ginger. Thanks so much for having us again, Brett. Great to be here. And uh, Q2's been on the show frequently as well. Adam Blue is the CTO of uh, Q2. Um, Adam, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate the invite. I'm looking forward to it. No problem. So, um, uh, Ginger, you've you you're sort of got all the fintech experience you you did some um you you spent some time at ripple um you were the founder of the mobile financial services product group at facebook you you looked at financial uh services and payments on messenger and whatsapp so um going to be very interesting to talk and and you're at square and visa previously as well so um, I want to definitely get into the whole wallet conversation embedded stuff today. And Adam, um, you're a big believer that tech can sort of change the world. You've been at Q2 for a while, um, but uh, you previously were at CypherTrust. So you've got uh, some cyber uh, security experience, QUP system, Savannah. Um, welcome to the show, both of you. In terms of open finance, you know, why are we hearing more about open finance, uh, you know, more, more recently? Maybe, um, Ginger, if you want to jump in first on this one. Sure, Brett, happy to. Well, open finance certainly became, well, I was going to say a household name, but I think if you were to ask my parents or my husband, they might not be talking about open finance all the time, but it's certainly an industry household name um, during the explosion of digital financial services during COVID. And while there was a lot of discussion around open banking, the need to expand services and expand access into more diversified types of accounts on behalf of people became very obvious over the course of the last 18 to 24 months. Um, Because as we were forced to move into a digital-only environment, Um, we needed better solutions to be able to manage our financial lives without physically going to bank branches. So the reason that open finance has become such a hot topic is because we were pushed into this pandemic and um, the growth of digital financial services probably grew, uh, we probably gained five years um, of evolution in this realm um, in a one-year timeframe. Just to put a little context around that, Brett, you know, between 2022 and 2021, Uh, the percentage of U.S. consumers who are using fintech grew from 58% to 88%. So that's more than a 50% year-over-year increase. And that kind of adoption for like refrigerator use took 20 years and computers 20 years, you know, and to see that- Well, it's more than, uh, more users on fintech than social media now. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. There used to be a, a great uh, stat about toothbrush use. So I don't have it uh, jotted down in front of me, but I think FinTech may have overtaken toothbrushes um, as well. So I'll have to look that up after the show. Um, that's pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that that's- Oral hygiene is important, people. It is important. It is important. But then, and, <laughs> and I'm happy to get into this, but maybe we do it a bit later in the conversation. But I think- just in addition to the environmental factors that moved us into this place. Um, there are also a number of industry-related trends as well as technical trends that I think um, have also brought this to fruition. Um, and we can talk about them now or, or I can hold them for later. Adam, um, you know, this uh, relentless march of technology changing banking and so forth, you know, uh, I, we've seen over the last decade um, growing acceptance, but but, gr- but grudgingly in, in many respects. And the pandemic certainly sped things up. But wasn't it a case that, you know, what we're seeing today was largely inevitable? I mean, uh, you know, uh, Ginger saying we saw five years of progress in the space of, of 12 months. But, um, you know, um, you know from, from your perspective as a technology guy in the space, um, weren't we always on this trajectory anyway? Yeah, I think that's a great observation, uh, Brett. I, I would tell you, we've been exchanging data with partners on behalf of end-user um, applications for things like uh, Direct Connect and um, Express Web Connect for Quicken and QuickBooks for, I mean, going on 13, 14 years now. Um, but but these were, they were very singular kind of solutions, right? And they weren't, they weren't particularly open. They weren't characterized uh, by an ecosystem and they were delivered kind of point to point via business relationship. So the technology, um, it's matured and gotten much more effective. Um, you know, open API and a variety of other um, movements have led to a lot of progress in being able to do those things. But the underlying technology has been around for, for a long time. Um, the, the kind of events and the kind of shift that COVID brought uh, around there's just so much inertia in account holder and end user behavior. So when people say, I just can't go to the branch, but I still need to perform these tasks, um, the friction that they're willing to tolerate to try and learn a new way to do a task the first time, I think really drops. And then they find out, well, this is actually a pretty convenient way to live and work, right? Like it boggles my mind that every single check, and yes, there are still checks in the United States, there's lots of them, uh, doesn't get deposited via mobile remote deposit capture. But there are reasons mm-hmm. that people are kind of, and I don't think they're resistant like, I think mobile remote deposit capture is bad. They're just resistant because the cognitive workload of trying a new thing and it maybe not working out and it you know being tedious. But once they, once they overcome that and it becomes part of, um, part of a new habit, it, it's very difficult to take people away. We, we always joke at Q2, the most hated piece of software is the last piece of software that you gave someone. And the one they love the most is uh, the one immediately before the one that, the one that you just replaced. And, and we find that cycle constantly. People just don't like change in the surface of applications and ecosystems that they, that they need to get through their day. It's expensive for them. Except if it's Excel. Excel uh, is, right. is annoyingly persistent, um, it, but we haven't got anything better. It, it's the Rasputin of software. I, I personally <laughs> have tried to kill it many times. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, when we talk about the platform side of things, both of you are in businesses that, um, 
you, you know, we would we could characterize as sort of core extensions or uh, middleware plays, you know, more definitely the platformification element of, of open financing. You know, it wasn't that long ago, um, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, where we heard a lot of talk about core system replacement. And now um, that's died down a lot. You know, obviously JP Morgan Chase has just chosen a real-time core thought machine for some some um, work that they're doing. But those sort of announcements are fairly rare um, these days, at least in, in 2021. But there's a lot more work being done on bulking out the um, product delivery capability with additional data and additional, um, you know, technology that can sort of plug into um, the core. But, um, you know, so in, in terms of that approach, where do you guys see the relationship between open finance and core systems for, you know, traditional banks moving forward, particularly uh, in the US where, you know, is, is your, your, two, your, your biggest market for both of you? Yeah, Adam, why don't you start just given your proximity to that, and then I'll add on when you finish. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ginger. So at least in the Q2 platform, um, part of our responsibility to our partners like Plaid is to abstract away all of the differences between the, I don't know, 50 different um, core providers and flavors of core provider that we bring to the digital channel. So when an end user logs into the Q2 platform via mobile or um, desktop or tablet or even Apple Watch, they expect to see consistent data all the time and it's got to match. And the data that we provide into the open finance ecosystem via aggregation interfaces and structured API also has to match. So a lot of the work we do is is actually um, to flatten out and abstract away the differences between these various core integrations. I would tell you, I feel like digital providers like Q2 and and integration providers and ecosystem providers like Plaid have been able to advance technology rapidly enough that we probably are at least partly responsible for the reason cores don't get replaced or modernized. Because if you're making this big investment at a financial institution in the end user facing applications and in the open finance parts of your business, um, you really don't need to spend a lot of time, quote unquote, modernizing the core. And, and frankly, given that the core represents back office processing and, and a set of value around um, operational characteristics and very little to do with end user experience, the use of the word core to describe it is, is a real marketing win by the companies that deliver that software because the total number of user interactions we get in the digital channel or in, in a chance through a channel like Plaid out um, from, from a fintech, it, it outnumbers the number of human beings that interact with the core directly by, I don't know, a hundred or a thousand. And so I, I think that the rise of digital technology and the openness of finance inviting fintechs to take advantage of predominantly digital platforms for the most part, at least in our part of the market, that enable that um, leads to less pressure on hey, let's modernize the core because digital presents this entirely alternate platform for doing the things you need to do and learning about your customers and delivering value. And, and I think the use of these types of platform solutions, just in the case of Plaid, are going to be used by just a whole host of different types of providers as we go forward. So 
you know, similar to what Adam was saying, just kind of extrapolating out the complexity and trying to offer a very simple solution-based product to our customers is, is something that we're hyper-focused on. And traditionally, those customers have been uh, fintechs um, and, you know, smaller startup fintechs. But increasingly, those customers are, you know, large enterprise tech companies, um, major financial institutions, and just a whole host of other kinds of of entities who are all starting to lean into the use of digital platforms like Plaid, like Q2, uh, et cetera, um, to build the kinds of digital products that their customers are asking for. Um, and then, you know, from, from Plaid standpoint, ensuring that any kind of institution, regardless of um, their type, meaning are they a bank, are they a credit union, are they a fintech neobank, are they a workforce data provider, whoever they happen to be, that holds data on behalf of a user should be able to access Plaid's, the, the services and applications that Plaid helps to power. And so using providers like Q2 and other types of platforms to kind of expand that reach so that we can stay hyper-focused on ensuring that universal access is basically guaranteed to all people. So they don't have to bank with the largest consumer uh, commercial bank or consumer bank. They can bank at a small community bank um, or credit union and still have the same high quality, reliable access to the fintech applications that they want to use is, is critically important. Um, in respect to the products that people are requesting that go outside of the core, you know, what what are some of the more notable examples of that, do you think, Ginger? Meaning you like said, you know, uh, well, you said yeah. Plaid is is being built to build the products that customers are demanding. So, you know, yeah. what what are those differentiated experiences or products day to day that you could build on Plaid that you would have difficulty doing without Plaid? Sure. So any any kind of embedded experience where the payment or financial services is. Uh, capability is almost unrecognizable. I actually gave this example just this week because my kids ordered um, a movie off of Amazon this weekend. And I don't think about who provided that financial service, right? There was a purchase somewhere in there, but I don't think about whether, in fact, I'm not even sure whether or not it was my, you know, credit card or debit card or something else that actually, or maybe even a stored value, like gift card I had loaded into Amazon that actually facilitated my family sitting down to watch a movie on Saturday. All I knew was that like we ordered a movie on Amazon. And so those kinds of experiences where, you know, the, you know, authorization, authentication, linkage of accounts and ability to make payments is done completely in the background of the experience you want to complete is just increasing, right? So that could be purchasing a car or ordering a movie or getting through an app experience or, um, you know, buying a product that you don't want to pay for in full today, but you want to pay for in installments month over month. Like all of that stuff can be facilitated because Plaid helps those experiences connect payment tools and applications in the back. So in in respect to sort of this building ecosystem, you know, the, the ecosystem that's emerging for 2025, I, I do this as in, in my talking head stuff as a Venn diagram overlapping three players, right, which is um, the income, surviving incumbent banks, and I say that with purpose, um, the tech giants, because they own a lot of the infrastructure that delivers financial services, such as smartphones, emerging smart glasses, smart speakers, and so forth, um, and the fintechs. 
right? And so, um, you know, um, I mean, I know Andreessen Horowitz says, uh, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen says everyone's going to be a fintech, um, you know, in the future um, and everyone's going to be a health tech company and so forth. But the reality is they're the sort of three main um, uh, groups of, of people coming into this open finance ecosystem. So when I know you guys have recently struck up a partnership, um, you know, Movin works with both Q2 and Plaid, um, you know, uh, in in respect to deploying um, mobile banking stuff. But how do you choose fintech partners to come into that ecosystem, giving changing customer expectations? Maybe, Adam, you want to start and I can go back to Ginger. Yeah, for sure. On the Q2 side, and, and honestly, I think Plaid is... Um, fairly similar in this respect, which which I, I take as an endorsement of this approach. We we try and be very uh, supportive and neutral, and so we have an offering called Marketplace. And as you mentioned, Movin um, is part of the Marketplace offering AQ2 around kind of a, a bank in the box approach. And we have lots of different capabilities that um, are starting to become part of Marketplace. So um, we've done some stuff around uh, partnership with NIDIG to deliver their ability to purchase uh, crypto assets and then hold them. But within the authentication perimeter of digital banking, um, we have worked with uh, AutoBooks, who has a great small business kind of accounting and automation solution. We've worked with a company called Veeam that does some really interesting payment stuff, in in particular cross-border and so as long as a partner can establish that they can um, effectively utilize the marketplace tool set and that they will uh, comply with, you know, kind of the guidelines around um, security, privacy, so on and so forth, um, everyone is welcome to participate in the ecosystem. And so our, our focus really is on making it straightforward um, and, and I think easy to deliver value to our, our FI customers, account holders. Um, by making it as kind of open as possible um, for any of those fintechs that want to come and create value. And then the notion of the marketplace is um, the demand for their services and the value they create will we'll kind of sort out whether it makes sense in the long term. Yeah, so I do endorse that approach. I don't know if that does sound quite familiar. Um, I think that's just like maybe two or three other things to add. You know, and we think about, and both the uh, provisioning of information into the applications that Plaid supports, as well as the applications themselves who utilize Plaid services. It's all about ex- you know expanding what those nodes are, basically strengthening them, and then making sure that uh, the value proposition can be derived right the, by whatever those entities want to be doing. So there's a few other areas that we've been spending a bit of time on, which is um, one we've Plaid has always had a really robust developer experience. You know, platform and program just to make sure that developers can get the tools that they need to get started really quickly. So let's get their businesses up and running and then help them grow. Uh, we're beginning to do it also on um, like developing self-serve tools and uh, programs that help um, institutions who want to allow their customers to permission data other places to also get started in a similar way. Um, so this is the work of the financial access team at Plaid in 2022 at building out self-serve tools, especially around Plaid Exchange and some of the other capabilities so that any type of institution that wants to get started quickly in enabling their account holders to permission data to other places um, can do that with the right tooling. So that's another piece of this as well, which is not just about um, enabling all of the, or wanting everyone to join into the network, but enabling them to do it quickly at low cost and in a way that maps to the resources they have. 
Now, uh, you know, the, the US market is a little bit unique in this respect to other markets. You're both obviously focusing on the US market. Um, but, um, you know, we have an unusual situation in the United States where about 70% of banks in the US basically rent a core from um, one of the uh, core providers. Um, do you guys find that uh, you know, speaking to those banks in, in that 70% that most are sort of unaware that they can go outside of that technology relationship to partner with fintechs? Or is there a growing awareness that there are other options available? Uh, on the Q2 side, uh, you know, we, we talk to customers constantly about how they're going to partner with, with fintechs. Um, you know, Marketplace is an important idea for us. And it it was really driven by customers saying, we want to partner with fintech companies. We know they're out there. We think partnering is a way we can create value for our account holders. And they're, you know, I think they're pretty confident in a lot of ways in their value proposition to the customer in the community um, because they have strong customer relationships. There's obviously a focus on digital for them, but I think they're very keenly aware that they can go outside of those core relationships. Now, to be fair, um, I may have some selection bias because the folks I'm talking to are predominantly prospects and customers of Q2. And it, it may be the case that those financial institutions are the ones maybe that grasp that as an effective strategy for them. But I, I can't remember the last time I talked to a, an FI in the last four or five years, and they weren't contemplating um, a, a pretty broad array of fintech partnerships that were really not what I would say core driven, if that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, before I, I want to come back to that, Ginger, but, sure. um, you know, if you were one of these, um, you know, uh, community banks or credit unions in the United States right now, and you were looking at extensibility of your platform over the next, you know, f- four or five years as the embedded banking, open finance stuff, uh, you know, the platform-based stuff really takes off, where are the sort of things that, um, those banks should be looking, you know, to rapidly get into the open finance game and really show their customers some some um, differentiated abilities. One, I would just say, get started as soon as possible. I think that, and this was what I was going to add on to Adam's comments, is that many of the institutions that we've talked to that are dependent on um, some of these cores, so the seventy percent that you mentioned, Brett. Um, they are evaluating lots of different types of partnerships and other kinds of capabilities that they can use that are provided by fintechs. Uh, some one observation is I think there might be a little bit of uh, analysis paralysis in a few of those conversations about where to get started first. What's the right first step to take? What's the right combination of things to do? And my nervousness on behalf of some of these institutions is just that they're not moving quickly enough. And just given the you know, explosion that we saw over the last two years. Uh, you know, I want them to move faster because I want them not to lose customers to institutions who are being uh, more open and more aggressive about enabling an interconnectivity with their accounts. And so the first thing I would do is just to get started, right? And um, not to be like pr- promotional here, but like call Plaid, like we'll get you set up with Plaid Exchange so you can make sure that your customers have access to um, the other types of services they want to use. We've seen a, a very direct impact on both revenue retention and um, transaction numbers for accounts that are quote unquote open um, and have access to the variety of different you know services that people want to use. And so that would be my overarching observation is there's just a little bit of stalling with some institutions. And I would say the faster they can move forward, the better. 
Yeah, I think, you know, if you if you are going to start with, you know, how how to help someone um, just in, in pure data terms managing their finances, the first thing you've got to do is make sure that they have a, an overview um, of all their finances, including their different bank accounts and their different credit cards so that they know um, the full picture of their finances. That seems a fairly easy starting point. But, you know, there it's not that long ago that we saw organisations like Chase and Wells Fargo taking you know, companies like MX and Plaid to court to prevent them from getting that data, claiming it was their data and not the customers. And of course, we know where that ended up. And um, you know, uh, and that, that's that's not how the world views customer data. But um, I, I want to talk just before we go to break. I just want to talk a little bit about financial inclusion. Um, you know, we have a growing awareness uh, uh, globally of the problems associated with inequality right now. The United States, uh, you know, um, particularly the inequality has grown during the pandemic. Um, the, the billionaires in the U.S. accumulated $1.6 trillion of new wealth during the pandemic. Um, you know, we have uh, about a quarter of a billion people that went um, slipped back into extreme poverty during the pandemic. So the gap between the rich and the poor is is, is sort of reached a, a crisis level. Um, and as part of that, access to financial services um, you know, continues to be critical for financial mobility. So, um, you know, we, we have about 20% of households in the United States that remain underbanked. Um, and, you know, part of that is just simple identity issues. But where do you see open finance bringing solutions in respect to both the issue of financial inclusion more broadly, you know, access to credit for the underbanked and, um, you know, just generally some improvements in terms of financial equality? Yeah, I'm happy to, to start here. I mean, um, just to build on your point, Brad, I mean, I think the CFPB says that one in 10 adults don't have any credit file um, with any of the three major credit bureaus. So I think there's obviously a lot of room for improvement in the way that we're providing services to people that may have traditionally been uh, less well served. Um, this is, you know, where a lot of like passion and motivation comes um, at Plaid and the way that we diversify the types of institutions that we enable to provide information um, to lenders and and tools that make credit decisioning. So for example, expanding beyond just simple bank data or checking and savings account and reaching things like payroll information, income statements, um, utility bills, you know, call reports. Like if you think about some of the inspiration we've seen in markets like East Africa and India, where people are using things like um, call logs and prepaid phone time and all of these other sources of information about people's responsible behavior that may not look traditional and standard in the way that, you know, the U.S. infrastructure has deemed it to be. Um, you know, this is a place where we can really start to open up opportunities so that people can get instant access to credit based on the contextualized nuances of who they are as a person, even if it doesn't fit into the very standard credit file requirements that we've seen over the last couple of decades. Mm. Um, so we're, I'm tremendously excited about this. Um, and so, yeah, so this is a, this is going to be an exciting thing. I think we'll start to see a lot of this stuff open up even in 2022, uh, in the first half of this next year. Fantastic. All right, Ginger Adam, uh, hold on. We're going to come back uh, after the break and I've got some more questions. I, uh, I'll talk briefly about Rwanda, Ginger, maybe if you can. Oh, sure. Fantastic. Yeah, let's okay. talk about, because, you know, we're on financial inclusion and then um, let's get into, you know, what this partnership between Plat and Q2 is all about for uh, 
um, you know, for 2022 and beyond. All right, guys, we're, we're just going to take a quick break. You're listening to Breaking Banks. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by FIS. If you want to reach the future faster, you must start early. For those who do, FIS brings you RISE. Insightful articles, best practices, research, and intelligence to help you stay current and rise above the competition. Subscribe at FISglobal.com slash insights or follow FIS Global on social media to get notified as soon as content is released. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I am your host, Brett King. Um, we are coming up on our ninth anniversary in May, so stay tuned. I hope we have something special for you. We're working on, on some stuff there. But uh, we have joining us this week Ginger Baker, the head of financial access at Plaid, and Adam Blue, the chief technology officer at Q2. So Ginger, we were talking about financial inclusion, um, you know, before the break, and, you know, we've seen dramatic improvements in financial inclusion in places like Kenya. You worked in Rwanda, um, you know, Ghana, Nigeria with MTN Money and M-Pesa and things like that are doing some incredible things there. Um, but, um, you know, the, the flexibility of those mobile money platforms, as you said before the break, to look at things like uh, airtime on the phones and so forth, um, you know, it, it it occurs to me that if we sort of play out what's happening in China with Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay in India with Paytm in Africa with the, the mobile money plays there, um, you know, we are very soon going to get to the point where the majority of customers globally use a mobile wallet as their primary bank account versus a bank account issued from a bank. 
Um, but having been a part of Visa's business going into Rwanda, um, you know, it, it, with the mobile wallet growth that we've seen in Africa versus plastic, are we seeing two competing ecosystems emerge here? Oh, oh Brett, I feel like we, we could do like a five-hour talk on this, honestly. Um, no, I don't believe that we... So let me let me give a little context. Okay, so the reason that those wallets were able to take off in the way that they did, and this is you know more than 10 years ago now when it really started to unfold, um, was there was a lot of different ways in which people were accessing services um, traditionally that were just too difficult to spread to the masses. And so the opportunity really became, how do we use, if you, if you can't justify building a bank branch in a rural community, you can't even justify the cost of issuing a chip card, right? Based on the amount of um, business that's going to happen through those accounts, what's the cheapest, lowest cost way that you can service people with financial with financial services? And that became using their cell phones. And, and this was even before smartphones, right? So just how do you use a USSD menu and a, you know, um, network of retail agents in rural communities to allow people to load, you know, cash to digital form and then use that to send money, pay bills, buy airtime. And, you know, the because um, the services were more limited and they were based on a prepaid wallet, uh, the regulation was looser around that or it wasn't as stringent. Um, and so I think over time, as you've started to see the emergence of how much opportunity can be born from those types of solutions, Governments around the world have taken a look at how do we make sure that these um, maybe lower, uh, you know, lower friction accounts around mobile wallets um, are not being treated unfairly in the context of what banks and other providers are offering. So um, I'll use the example of the Philippines, where I spent a lot of time when I was at Facebook. You know, they were really building a um, domestic payment service that could incorporate both. Um, wallets that were opened up by the subsidiaries of the major telcos, in addition to the banks. And how do you create a service that interoperates those different types of accounts and allows people to use the type of account that gives them the solution and service they need in the moment that they need it? Some people want to use full bank services for a whole host of reasons. Some people are very happy to just load in a few pesos a week into a prepaid airtime wallet so they can buy more digital airtime. And so, you know, that's where I think the um, the real opportunity is going to come when you can create interoperability between those different types of accounts, which would which would include, you know, internationally enabled payment cards, right, credit cards and debit card, also domestic solutions, and then the more simplified wallet providers. Um, but it's been fascinating to watch how this has spread globally, and then importantly, how much we can learn in the way that we can get more creative and more nimble in offering solutions in countries. Um, you know, that Adam and I are working in today. Um, there's just so much we can learn, right, by looking um, looking outside of what's been going on in the U.S. Uh, I mean, we do get skewed in terms of the view, uh, you know, in, here in the U.S., but if, you know, we look at China, China's about to launch, um, you know, the uh, E1, ECMY, in a mobile wallet for the Beijing Olympics as a primary um, payments mechanism, Um yeah, that that in itself is a pretty pretty significant um, you know news item in, in respect to evolution of money. Um, it's the biggest evolution of money we've seen since the you know in the 1600s the creation of the banknote. Um, you know, but you could argue, right? Um, but the, the the mobile wallet interoperability you talk about and sort of this 
uh, open finance view of, you, you know, you're on Amazon, you don't really care what the underlying payment vector is, you know, just as long as your wallet is smart enough to work it out, you know, whether you've got a crypto, whether you've got an underlying crypto account or it's USD or it's ECNY, ultimately your wallet's going to be smart enough to uh, integrate, you know, or just figure that out. Um, and so it isn't, it isn't for both Plaid and Q2 the more natural place to build embedded finance in a mobile wallet? So I'm I'm happy to take take this one. I'll hand it over to you, Adam. So I, I think again, I, I would defer. Like I really want to always tie these conversations back to the the person, right? What is a person trying to achieve, and then what are the various environmental factors, factors, technical factors, cost factors that are going to enable a solution for that person in that moment? And in some cases, that might be a prepaid wallet. In other cases, with a particular type of funding source. In another case, it might be a wallet that facilitates all kinds of different payment methods. There could be you know, a variety of different debit and credit cards loaded in there. You could have digital assets stored in there. You could have a whole host of things. In another environment, I mean, as difficult as, as it is for me to say it, it might be cash, right? So what is the thing that the person is trying to achieve? Who is the provider of the service? And then how do we just make that as easy and seamless and accessible to the person as possible? So I try not to be overly prescriptive about you know, why a wallet is better or not. Um, it, it really is about what um, what the various factors are. You know, in a number of conversations with customers of ours at Plaid, you know, they're trying to balance a lot of different things that they want ultimately the person to convert through the experience. They want the person to get to the destination and the outcome that they want. So how do they balance that conversion metric with things like cost for the provider themselves and customer experience, making it delightful, and it's so like those three elements are going to get mixed up a, a bunch, right? Which is, do you over-index on customer experience for, um, you know, at the ex, ex, for a higher expense? Do you stay focused, hyper-focused on just conversion? And these are things that we just trust our our customers to be sorting out, right? And we will help them through that. Try to make the conversion as high as possible. And we've been investing on a lot of that um, over the course of the last number of quarters at Plaid try to help them drive cost down so that they can really optimize the customer experience. Um, but again, I, I think it's really about the nature of the service being provided and, and the person that is taking advantage of that service. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you want to comment, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a really interesting kind of rubric um, that you lay out, Ginger. And I, I think, you know, our, our lens on it at, at Q2 and more specifically my lens, of course, is, um, you know, we're carrying around all the payment mechanisms kind of that have ever been invented. We, we have money that's made out of paper. We have money that's made out of metal. It's really inconvenient. I hesitate every time I get changed somewhere. I just want to throw it as hard as I can because inconvenient, it's low value. <laughs> um, we've got paper checks, which are absurd to the point of ridiculousness, but businesses are sending out tons and tons of paper checks. You know, we do a ton of positive pay business to help protect against but this is check. a real U.S. thing. Like, what is it? Seventy-eight percent of all checks in the world are written in the United States. It's such yeah. a legacy thing. It's like, what do we have to do to get rid of checks? You know, it's the inertia, right? But yeah, I've got contractors that I want to work on my house, and all they're going to do is take a check. I can't send them seventeen thousand dollars on Venmo. Um, they don't want to give me their bank details. If I ask them for wire instructions, and I can get a wire done at my bank. They, they don't they don't know how to give me the right ABA number for a wire. So in spite of all the new things we've created, all the ways there are to make a payment, 
that intersection in the Venn diagram between payments the person wants and payments that I'm comfortable giving, and then the, you know the limits. Sometimes that Venn diagram gets really shallow. But, but so. again, this is very U.S. centric thinking. You know, I mean, uh, Europe doesn't have checks. Asia rarely has checks. You've got some in the Middle East. Africa doesn't have checks. So, sure. um, you know, for 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 the European markets and and most of the Asian countries that have rolled off checks, the real time bank to bank payments capability obviously is being key now. You know, we've got Fed later coming in 2024. Fed, Fed now, sorry. Um, <laughs> I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a Freudian slip, but um, um, you know, but but like, is it just education, Adam? Because no. the reality is, it's it's faster. You're going to get money into your account instantly. It's um, it's arguably safer. Checks are not secure. Um, nope. What's the problem? It's familiarity. And it's behavioral inertia. I mean, just but, pretty but much. We, the, but Europe had familiarity and behavioral inertia with checks, and they were able to get rid of them. But th- that that certainly is is the case. Um, the the thing about it is, end users are comfortable with methods of payment. They don't they don't care about making the payment. No one gets excited. Well, maybe some people do. It seems very unlikely somebody gets excited about making a payment by smashing their thousand dollar cell phone against POS terminal. People do it because they think it's going to be more convenient or it's more useful. For a lot of people, you know, the, the plastic swipe is still a, a very common form. That's reasonably of course, of course. modern, right? Because yeah, yeah. it's in the wallet. It's only only 50 years old. Yeah. Yeah. You got your wallet in your left hand. You walk up, you got your card in your right hand. You swipe the card, you put the card back in the wallet. I, I think there's, memory of that. I, yeah, no, I, th- I think there's a pretty easy way to get rid of checks in the United States is helping people understand that suck, the orig- originating word that now has become Czech, was actually a Persian word used for a bill of exchange on the Silk Road. So if everyone knew, knew they were using a Persian payment artifact, I think it would disappear pretty quickly in the US. That, that might do it. That might do it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the the partnership between you go- you two guys. You've just announced, um, you know, Plaid, uh, Plaid and Q2 coming together to create an open finance platform. Um, what specifically does that mean for for people listening to the show right now? So for, for Q2 customers, I, I think it's pretty exciting because it means that Q2 is going to help financial institutions make their accounts available to the universe of participants in the Plaid ecosystem in a way that's more secure, more reliable, and more predictable than it was before Plaid Exchange. And then the second big piece that I'm really excited about is um, working with Plaid and the excellent work that they've done to create granular and specific control around observing where aggregation comes from, where the data is going, and then being able to dial that up and down as end users are comfortable. And those are two things that we just we just really don't have today. Um, accounts have been yep. getting aggregated in the U.S. since 2000, maybe earlier, um, with the Yodelies and uh, you know Vertical One was an early player, I believe, in that space. They're long gone. Um, but this is the first time we've really put the end user in control in a meaningful way from their digital banking experience over how that happens and and doing some of that permissioning and and authorization. And I think that's really, really going to be valuable for for account holders. Yeah. And I mean, just just to provide a little context on why this is so meaningful for Plaid also is that, you know, nearly a quarter of the accounts that 
are connected through Plaid are held at you know credit unions or community banks and just smaller financial institutions. And as I mentioned before, like we just care deeply about ensuring universal access that these accounts are just as connected and just as secure and just as reliable um, in the way that they operate within the fintech ecosystem as any account offered by any other type of institution. So, you know, the partnership with Q2 just benefits like you know tens of millions of people who bank at smaller institutions to be able to have this kind of access. Um, and then part of what we've done with Plat Exchange and just ensuring that like Q2's integration with Plat Exchange is that the you know hopefully the lift for these customers of Q2s can be really lightweight. Um, so that this enablement is really done in partnership with Q2, um, who's doing most of the heavy lifting here, um, and then it just becomes, you know, something that's a part of the services that Q2 offers. So you talked about um, tens of millions of customers. Uh, you know, how many customers do you expect will benefit from from this partnership, um, Adam? You know, I think um, we, we generally see aggregation rates, and it, and it varies by a five. Uh, probably as, as high as 30 or 40% across users, sometimes higher, sometimes lower. Um, I, I would think, uh, Ginger, you could tell us what the, the average um, you see on the, on the Plaid side is, but I, I would expect um, over time to see that, that number even go up. I, I think that uh, the FinTech model and the FinTech plays into that part of the space are compelling for account holders at financial institutions. And I would think that in, in the coming years, uh, the number of end users that benefit from not just Plaid, but you know, obviously the other um, aggregators and ecosystem players that we work with uh, probably will get w- well north of 50% uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think also, you know, institutions who begin to enable this um, more deeply, this kind of enablement and permissioning for their consumers, they really begin to see the benefits of greater use of those accounts. It's it's the way that the financial institutions stay primary, and you can use the financial institution issued account as the, you know, hub, um, and then it spokes out, right, to the other fintech applications. And that's really important. Um, I know it's really important for a lot of the banks that we talk to directly, for sure. So specifically this year, what what's different? Because you guys have, um, have presumably been partnering before, but you know what what do you see the outcomes in twenty twenty two specifically being, Ginger? Yeah, so we've done some really interesting uh, work with the integration that we have with Q two to help keep the permissions that the consumer is setting up visible and transparent across both institutions. So to put it a little bit in context, um, Plaid just launched Plaid Portal. Which, was, which is a product, um, it's actually my.plaid.com. So it's a surface that we've provided that allows any person to come to that surface and see where their financial information has been permissioned. So they can see it drives transparency, whether or not my um, you know, bank XYZ account is connected to Venmo or Chime or Robinhood or Cash App. And then it allows the person to actually take an action and say, I want to stop sharing my data with that application if, the, if they so desire. And the two-way flow of information and the APIs that we've created with Q2 help us to keep that kind of transparency and control in sync with one another. So I think this is a really unique component of the way that the institutions are working together. You know, obviously we're in a very data-rich society and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of issues about privacy and so forth. But, you know, what, exa- what data exactly do you think consumers are looking to have access to in respect to financial services and have more control over who accesses? 
So I, th- if you don't mind, Adam, I just want to hop in here. Cause I, I actually think it's, um, data minimization is a big thing that we've been focused on recently, which is the consumer can choose what account they want to permission and what type of data they want to permission. Um, and so that's different than historically what had been available when we were very much in the um, getting started in this open banking and open finance journey. And now we've just become so much more sophisticated. And so each use case may require a different type of data to be provided. And so a customer may say, I really want to provide my transaction history because that's how the budgeting app that I'm using is helping me to understand you know, my inflows and my outflows and can help me build a better budget. In other cases, somebody might say, I just really want to permission the balance check because that's what Venmo is going to use to make sure that I can, I'm good for the payment I'm about to make. And so it helps the customer to get smarter about what information they're providing to what application. And then they can they can understand you know, what's being used to power the services that um, that they're taking advantage of from the fintechs. Okay. What about you, Adam? I think just giving the end user the transparency around where is my data going? Because it, it's really, you know, it describes the end user's activities. It's the end user's data. It's about like who has access. Yeah. Who knows my account balance outside of me? You know, through, right. uh, who knows my account number? You you talked about the fact that your contractors don't want to give their bank account numbers because it's like they're worried people could steal their money. But, um, you know, like who who has access to that information and why, right? That's right. And And being able to see that day after day after day, right? Not just, okay, you're linked with these three accounts or I got to remember I set up a Robinhood account, you know, three years ago and then I forgot about it. Well, if you forget about it, Robinhood's still watching your balance if they're pulling that data because you permission them to do it at some point for some long period of time. So that, I think transparency and observability for end users in, in their financial technology stack, for lack of a better word, um, actually encourages trust. And I think citing that at the financial institution where the end user has a relationship, they know where the building is that they can drive to and talk to a human being. And and then they know they can have a relationship with someone that can actually be held accountable. Um, It's different than, you know, I I love Netflix, but I don't think I'll ever call them on the phone, right? The, The algorithm there is not something that can be accountable to me. There's no person in my relationship with Netflix, but your financial institution, you get a person and you can have a relationship with them when you need it. Um, and I think that's a really powerful idea, even as digitization continues to rise. Yeah. Um, where, you know, in terms of what we're seeing in the markets in respect to, you know, the platformification stuff, you know, um, obviously you've got players J- like JP Morgan Chase who invested in hundreds of fintechs and partnerships. But how does this change or how does this affect the smaller banks in the US, Adam? I, you know, we've been saying for years on the Q2 side, uh, if I get my phone out, like Bank of America gets, gets the same number of pixels. JP Morgan Chase gets the same number of pixels on the screen that uh, A-plus Federal Credit Union here in Austin, Texas gets. And so there's a real opportunity with good technology to um, eliminate some of the uh, disparity in those experiences, both from the perspective of supporting community banking, which we believe deeply in and is a key part of our mission to strengthen diverse communities by strengthening their financial institutions, but also because it's important to Q2, just like it is to Plaid, 
for um, the account holders and customers of those financial institutions to have access to the same technology and the same opportunity. So if Venmo is great, then you should be able to have a Venmo relationship and use Venmo against any account in the United States if that's what you want to do. And I think that realization that we can bring that um, to banks in the longer tail of the size distribution um, is a powerful one. And that democratization in terms of the access to technology is, I mean, it's a big part of our mission at Q2 and what we focus on. We've got very large FI customers and we have very small FI customers, but a lot of our, our culture is around, let's give them all the same approach to technology. Let's give them all the same value proposition. Ginger, at the start of our discussion, you talked about the fact that we'd seen an acceleration in adoption of uh, digital banking tools as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the, I think there's a fair argument that the, that the smaller banks and the regional players tended to be laggards in respect to a lot of the technology. Have you seen a significant uptick in, um, you know, the, the smaller banks looking to partner with Plaid in uh, recent yes. times? We have, and it's one of the reasons why we're spending more resources now on um, self-serve and scalable solutions to getting folks enabled. Um, the partnership with Q2 is certainly an example of, of this, and even more of the you know platform solutions that we can build to help folks get started themselves. And I, I don't think that should be surprising, right? I mean, these folks... Um, are part of the society that we're living in where, you know, we recently did a study where seven in 10 U.S. customers say that fintech is now made, because of the fintech solutions and this, um, you know, rapid expansion over the course of the last 12 to 24 months, like finance is actually part of their daily conversation. They talk about these fintech tools. And so making sure that the places that they work are enabling people to take advantage of these is, um, you know, is something that people are experiencing every day. So we're excited about the increased, um, you know, curiosity about how all this works. I'm eager to get this universal access mission of ours really landed. Um, and it's the, you know, the partnership with Q2 is, is a great step towards this. Um, I think we were very mission aligned and vision aligned on what we're trying to achieve here. Um, and so I'm, I'm super excited about it. Awesome. So um, Adam, where can people go to find out more information about Q2 and, and this uh, partnership with Plaid specifically? Yeah, so if you're a Q2 customer, um, you can reach out uh, to your uh, relationship management team for more details. Um, we've been communicating with existing customers a bit. And if you're if you're not a Q2 customer um, and you're interested, certainly. And you should uh, be. Yes. The, the, <laughs> the, the website's got um, great information there and, and you can certainly reach us there. Um, and then uh, we've got teams at all the, you know, all the major events and conferences and everything else. So we're, we're absolutely around. But the website would be a great place to start. And. Uh, Ginger for Plaid for the uh, the fintech. Um... Yeah, same. I mean, Plaid.com has a lot of great information. If people are interested in Plaid Portal, which we just launched, which right. is the tool for transparency and control, it's at my.plaid.com. Um, and then, you know, always happy to connect with folks directly. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and very active. So if people are interested in understanding our solutions better, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, Ginger Baker. And uh, Adam Blue, thank you for joining us on Breaking Banks today and, and talking open finance, mobile wallets, and, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the pandemic effects on, on digital finance. Thanks, Brett. It was fun. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Brett. You bet. Thank you, Ginger. All right, guys, that's it for this week's show. We will be back with more Breaking Banks next week. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this week. 
If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.